0: John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. If you would look at your Bibles or the screen with me, we'll read through it and I'll pray and then we'll get after it here this morning. Everybody doing all right? Doing good? All right. We're going to have some fun here this morning. All right. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain and there sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number, and Jesus then took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill... He told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who, who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, this group of people, my brothers and sisters, they do not need my Word this morning. I need what they need. Your Word. And this is your Word that we just read from. And I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to help me be faithful to what you wrote. Work in us right now. There are people... All over the map in here. There are people who don't want to be here. There are people who are just simply here because they're here. There are people here. It's just their delight to worship you with the people of God. All over the place. Holy Spirit, take these words, your word, and work uniquely in each one of us. Help us. Work, receive. We want We want to be changed. And for the ones in here who don't want to be changed, I pray that you would show them their need for it and that they would want it. Just help us. We want to meet with you. You're already here present with us. We've been singing about you and talking about you and hearing about the cross. And so what now? What do we do? How do we respond? So Holy Spirit, navigate us through that. Work in us. Help us. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, we live in a specialized world. With the advancement of education, formal academia throughout the world, with the advancement of technology, more and more our world is specialized. If you go uh, to the doctor, you go to an adult doctor. If you have a child, you bring your child to who? A pediatrician, a children's doctor. If you have something wrong with your head, nose, or throat, is it, and I screwed this up the first service, head, nose, and throat? Ear. Ear, nose, and throat. Why do I keep saying that? Ear, nose, and throat, you go to a what? Where do you go if you've got back problems? Chiropractor. Chiropractor. Okay. So, we live in a specialized world. In almost any field of study, you have tacticians within that field that are very specifically educated we're used to renaissance being a renaissance person was celebrated i can do many many things well anymore specialized education is revered so we have very few people who are renaissance in thought know many many things about or know a lot about many many things fewer and fewer people like that and th- and more and more people who believe that they're experts and in fact are experts about very few things okay i believe with all my heart that unintentionally that mindset has been brought into the church. But in the church, it's played out like this. We have professional Christians, we have professional ministers, and they do the work of ministry. And so we are going to outsource our evangelism to the pastors, the professional ministers. And we're going to bring our non Christian friends to them, and then the professional pastors will tell them about Jesus, and hopefully they'll become Christians. We also do this with the raising of our children. I love being a dad. I love being a dad. But I do not want to fall into the trap that the world, and especially the, I mean, specifically the Christian world, has fallen into, and Christian mothers and fathers have outsourced the raising of their children to the church. So, it's professional missionaries who are the true missionaries. It's a pref- professional pastors who are the evangelists. It is the children's church director, and it's the youth pastor who will lead my kid in the ways of the Lord. So I'm, my responsibility as a parent then is get them to church and get them here, and their responsibility is to take care of it. Okay, let me just tell you that that whole idea is totally wrong. Parents, if your children don't want to come to church, that is not our fault. That's your responsibility. Period. Now you say, Jared, you only have one child. Okay, I, okay. Um, experientially, you know, and my son's one years old, so I'm an expert parent of teenagers, right? Being a parent of teenagers is really, really easy. Just talk to me, I'll tell you how to do it. Um, okay, you get that. That's in jest. Uh But here's what I don't have to have experience with to know. The Bible teaches that parents are primarily responsible for raising up their children in the ways of the Lord. I don't have to have experience raising children to know that's what the Bible teaches. Okay? So parents, it's not our responsibility, it's yours. Period. Now, what about with ministry? Well, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 that what I'm doing here today... What our elders and our church and our deacons and Ralph, what, what they're responsible for, is training and equipping you for the work of ministry. We are not the professional Christians who kind of do this ministry stuff. You know, we kind of live up here at the church building and, and, and only, you know, that, that's what we do. We just kind of hang out and, and do Christian things and do this professional evangelism. We go out and do all this stuff. You are the ministers. The Holy Spirit of God has called you into this work. You are missionaries. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a 19th century pastor, said it like this. You're either an, a missionary or an imposter. Okay? Hello, ministers. How are you? Hello, missionaries. How are you doing this morning? Doing all right? There's much work to be done. But don't we have excuses for everything? We have so many excuses because in our mind, this is what we do. We outsource certain things. Discipleship, the professional disciplers make disciples. That's not my responsibility. The professionals take care of my children. The professionals take care of my neighbors. The professionals take care of my co-workers. So this morning, we're going to see that that is totally false. Okay? So buckle up. We're going to see some powerful, some cool, some really neat things this morning. So, John chapter six is a very significant passage, especially to early followers of Jesus. And we're going to see here in a little bit, actually in the next couple weeks that I get to preach. Um, uh, Ralph will be preaching next week, but and then the week after that, we get to celebrate what God is doing and celebrate recovery. We're going to have a celebrate recovery week, and it's going to be wonderful to see what God is doing. And then after that, we're going to be finishing up John chapter six and what we're going to see is that there's all sorts of Old Testament uh, connections with this passage of Jesus being uh, creating bread and feeding the 5,000 and Him saying to the people, I'm the bread, like like I'm the one who satisfies. There's all these connections that are going to be made. But this morning what we're going to see primarily is that Jesus invites His disciples, He invites people, His followers, into His work. Meaning, if you're on Jesus' team, okay, you're Jesus' messengers. There's not an option that I love Jesus, but I'm not in the work of Jesus. I'm, I love Jesus, but I'm on my mission in life. I love Jesus, but I'm going to come to Jesus on my terms. I love what He gives me, but really it doesn't require anything of me. If you're on Jesus' team, then you are Jesus' messengers. This is, we're, we're in this together. You play a part. You have a role. Every one of you, if you're a believer, you're in the game. Well, where do we see this? Where do we see this? Okay, look with me in John chapter 6, like I've already read, and look at verses, uh, let's just specifically go to verse 4. Here's what Jesus said, that, or the, the passage says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, that's Jesus then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, we see in this passage five thousand people. If you look in your you know your Bibles, the heading says five Jesus feeds the five thousand. This is the only passage within the gospels, the only story, the only activity of Jesus that that other than the cross and resurrection that is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, this is in John as well. Jesus feeds the 5,000. The only story of what Jesus is doing, other than his life, death, and resurrection, the only specific thing that's in all three passages. And what's interesting is the other gospel writers note something about this instant, and John remembers back and remembers something else, but it's so similar. It's almost completely identical. In Matthew verse 14 or chapter 14, verse 16, in Mark verse chapter 6, verse 37, and in Luke chapter 9, verse 13, in their telling of the story, Jesus says to the disciples, You give them something to eat. That's what he tells them. You give them something to eat. In this passage, in John, we see an invitation. Okay, we see an invitation. Here's what I mean, here's what Jesus says to Philip specifically. Where are we to buy bread? Now, now why does he say that in a plural way? Why why does he say it like that? What's the intention here? We know in verse 6, Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was about to do. So... I love this. It, sometimes we miss the personality of Jesus because words can almost appear static to us. But Jesus was a real man with a real sense of humor even. And, and this, I can almost imagine the scenario where Jesus is just setting people up, time in and time out. And he is going to tell, he's, it's like baiting him. He's baiting Philip. He knows what he's about to do, but he's testing him and he's about to do this work and all these different things that are playing into this. But Jesus invites him into the work he's about to do by saying, where are we? Going to buy food. This is the invitation. Now, if you're a Christian, I already said you're on Jesus' team and you're Jesus' messengers. Okay, what does that mean? What does that mean then? We're Jesus messengers. Okay, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Um, this invitation, where are we going to buy food? Who, okay, you give them something to eat. This is the exact same thing that Jesus shows us in Matthew 28, where he invites us into the mission. He invites us into what he is doing. This is non optional. If you're a Christian, you're invited into what he is doing. Matthew 28 says it like this verses uh, tw- 18 to 20. It says this Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let me just pause real quick. Is that not comforting? Doesn't it look like our world is chaotic? Jesus says He has all authority. So whatever authority some kingdom or some nation may think it has, Jesus has greater authority. There's so much comfort for me in this passage. Hopefully for you, you know I, I know that some of the you know things that are happening in our world are not the most godly, right? So I'm thankful that Jesus says this. He tells us this, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age.'" Now, this is wonderful too. This is a sandwich of awesomeness. Uh, The first verse says that Jesus has all authority. The last one says that, "'Behold, I'll be with you to the end of the age.'" Doesn't that give you great help when we hear the command in the middle, go into all the world making disciples? Like, doesn't that give you like, because that's a huge command. All the world? Really, Jesus? Okay, but but here's what I want you to know. Uh, Jesus told this to the twelve disciples, and he told the disciples then to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. You know what that means? That this command is for us. Every one of us. It's not just for the professional Christians. It's not those that just uh, receive uh, help and funds to do professionally this. This is for you. Non-optional. Go and make disciples. Who are you discipling? Some of you wonder, what does that even look like? Many of you, and we're going to talk a little bit about different excuses based on age... Um, younger men and women have excuses, older men and women have excuses, middle-aged people have excuses of why this is for other people but not for them. You can't excuse your way out of this. Okay? Many people in this room have never been discipled. They have no idea what that means. Okay? I'll just say this. You're either discipling somebody in a good or bad way because people are learning from you about discipleship. They're either learning, oh, it's not that important, I don't need to invest in other people. They're learning from you that you believe the church exists to make you happy. They're learning from you that discipleship really doesn't matter. The church just simply exists to make me be at peace and to help me and to serve me. Or they're learning from you that, oh, wait, to be a Christian means to invest in other people. It means to grow relationally with other people. It means to intentionally invest in other people to see young men and women grow up in the faith. It means me opening myself up to other men and women to help me grow in the faith. That's what it means, period. Who's discipling you and who are you discipling? Well, let me just say this. If you don't know what that means... If you don't know how to disciple one, if you've never been discipled before, the the offer is on the table. I want to disciple you. Ralph, we have elders here. We, We want to disciple you, to show you, to give you a little bit of handles of what it looks like to walk with somebody and grow deep with somebody and then help other people follow Jesus. Every one of you are given this command. So why is it such a rarity? Why? Why is it so outsourced? Well, the church takes care of that. You are the church. You—that's your responsibility. So, who are you discipling, and who's discipling you? Jesus said, "Where are we going to buy bread?" This thing with Jesus is not just Jesus and me; it's Jesus and we. It's not just I've got a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm never going to get connected to the church, and I'm, i just me and Jesus got our thing. I don't have to do anything. That's not the call of a Christian. Go make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Who are you discipling and who's discipling you? Okay, don't excuse your way out of that command. So come to me and say, Jared, I don't know what it looks like to be discipled. And I will love to disciple you, to help you then and give you practically what you can do to begin to do this in other people's lives as well. Okay, so that was free. Let's move on. You are sent. The, the invitation to Jesus, come and see what I'm going to do. I'm going to work. I want you to be a part of my work. I want you to see my work. I want you to help me buy bread for these people. I want you to give them something to eat. I want you in the game. Amen. Okay? Right. So, what happens? What's some responses then that we see in this passage to the invitation that Jesus gives? Hey, if you're there, okay, where are we going to buy bread? We've got a lot of people to feed. Now think about this. 5,000 people. Not just 5,000 people, 5,000 men. D.A. Carson said that he believes that this, and most commentators agree, anywhere from fifteen to 20,000 people in this field. Fifteen to 20,000 people who don't have food. Okay, And the invitation is, give them something to eat. Is it not impossible sounding? How are we going to give... Okay, Philip, or Andrew, says... Uh, here in a second, actually, Philip says... Let me go back to the passage. He said... This, to test him, Philip answered, 200 denarii denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. I mean, the task is impossible, is it not? How do 20,000 people in this field get fed by us? I mean, don't you see, so this is the response. The first response we're going to see to the invitation that Jesus gives, the first one that we see to get in the game, first response is from the disciples, and it's from Philip, and his his response is one of bewilderment and question and wonder, confusion. He just sees the reality of the impossibility of the task before him, and he simply just says, Jesus, eight months' wages wouldn't buy enough food for all of these people even to eat a little bit. That's an impossible task. Andrew says something very similar. Look at verse 9. There's a boy here who has 5 barley loaves and 2 fish. But what are they for so many? So he sees this little boy and he's like, it's like me saying, I've got a pack of saltine crackers here. Hey Ralph, I want you to eat as much as you want with these two saltine crackers and these pass these on, pass it on behind you to Jim back there. Okay? Like, what are you talking about? There's 150 people in here, how, or however many people in here, a pack of saltine crack. The comedy behind this, right? What Jesus is inviting them into is something that is completely confusing. How is this going to happen, friends? Th- this is the invitation of Christ. We're invited into impossible living. Okay, I mean the whole reality of you being a Christian is already impossible. How on earth did God save you, really? Like we've experienced. The possibility of what seems to be impossible by Jesus saving us already, right? But then inviting us into this mission, it seems like this impossible task evangelize the world. We have impossible situations in front of us all the time. What are some impossible situations that we look at and we think, how on earth are we going to be able to do this? Where we respond like these disciples. Well, here's one scenario. We have an unsaved family member. Let's just say you have an unsaved family member that's really far from God. And you're thinking, there's just no way this person is going to ever... God is not going to use... I need to get somebody who really knows their stuff to go talk to this guy. My uncle. My, I, it's just impossible. God, how could you use me? I don't know enough. I'm not studied enough. I just... I can't do this. You're not going to use me. You're going to use somebody else, but not me to talk to that person. This seems impossible. How could you use me to talk to somebody? So maybe this person's way more intelligent than you. How are you going to use me to do this, God? What about this? Unsaved classmates or coworkers, students, when you go into school. Uh, there are some unsaved people there, right? Well, God, how are you going to do this? What are you going to do? Me? Measly, me? I'm young. I don't know my stuff yet. I'm, I mean, I'm working with Andy and learning some apologetics, but you know, I'm still got some questions. I, how could God ever use me? An impossible situation and scenario in front of us. So pessimism rises up. How about this? Unrepentant Christians? Do you know any people that are just a straight up brick wall? I mean, some people think that I'm like that. Of course, I'm not. I'm not a brick wall. You know, like, uh. okay, unrepentant Christians, you know, that as you confront and like, I don't think this is the best behavior this is this is not right they're like and they immediately did you just you feel like it's an impossible task in front of you you don't know how god is going to use you how about uh, a revival i pray for that i hope you do I regularly pray for revival. We're experiencing it on a small level. Some way we could say small. We're experiencing it right now because, we've, like I've said, we have seen uh, in the teens now people become Christians this year, people that Jesus saved, and we have seen 20 people baptized this year. Don't we want to see more of that? Don't we want to see hundreds more of those kinds of people? People becoming like us, Christians, saved, redeemed, broken people with a great God? People that Jesus is making whole? We want to see revival, but the task at hand, we look at our world, we look in front of us, Jesus, how, how are you going to do this? It looks so impossible. It's a field full of people, and all we've got is just up measly us. The excuses rise up. I'm too young. Or I'm too old. Impossible situations. Okay, let's see scenario number two. We have a different response from a little boy. And I don't want to put too much in the text that's not there. In fact, I don't want to put anything in the text. So we've got to be, be careful just to, to say what it says. Look at verse 9 again. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Here we get a picture of a little boy. Now, this gospel is the only gospel that has this little boy in the scene. John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record this little boy. John does. Why is he there? We don't hear much about him. He's just there. Well, obviously, he gives away. Apparently, he's the only prepared person in the crowd, right? Like, he's the only one thinking through, like, maybe I should bring some food. I'll bring a little bit of lunch. And, you know, he's got kind of his sardine can, and he's got a couple saltines, and and he he goes away. And all of a sudden, there's a guy named Andrew that's saying, hey, uh, Jesus needs this. I don't really think it's going to be much. But all we know is this little boy gave up this food. Now, isn't that fascinating? There's an impossible situation. There's something confusing. There's somebody wanting to take my food, and there's, I'm the only person here in 20,000 that has any food, and they're wanting to take mine? What's the deal? Isn't this a pretty radical scene? This boy gives all he has. He just, I don't have much, but Here. Apparently there was a willingness to give it away. I mean, it doesn't say that and Andrew chased him down and took his lunch, you know. Like, give me your lunch, little kid. You know, like, Jesus need you. <laughs> We don't see that. He gives it up. Like, this is a different response. Here. Now, let me tell you this. This is and ought to be our response. Every one of you. Jesus, who am I? I don't have much. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but what can I do in the kingdom? Well, for one, it's not about who you are, it's about who Jesus is, for one. But if you realize that your responsibility is to make disciples, that you are in the game, that Jesus chose you to be a part of his team, then it's non-optional to do anything else. You offer what you have. What do you have? What are your giftings? This is where excuses rise up all the time, especially among kind of nominal Christian people who go through the motions. Yes, I've been here. Excuses rise up. Well, I don't have the time. Right? I mean, who has time? Is anybody in here like, is like, I've got tons of time. Even if you do, you're totally embarrassed because we, you know, we value being a workaholic for some reason. And it's like, if I've got time on my hands, you're like, don't be the one who's got time. You know? So... Like, what other excuses? Well, I'm too young. I'm too young. I don't have a voice. Nobody will listen to me. Well, apparently this little boy wasn't too young. When the disciples, when they said, uh, Hey, kids, Jesus doesn't have time for you. Jesus is like, what are you talking about? Let them come to me. Paul tells Timothy, Do not let anyone look down on you because of your youth. And then later he calls Timothy in that same book, As for you, O man of God, Timothy, a youth. Paul calls him a man. Who cares if you're young? Kingdoms, the kingdom of God has been advanced by young people throughout the centuries. Jesus has used younger people. If you're a younger person, well, you say, well, I'm too old. I'm too old. I've done this. I've been through the motions. I've done this. And now it's time for me to just be. You don't have that option. There's no such thing as Christian retirement. None. Especially our church, listen, our church is primarily, let me say this, at the risk of people thinking certain things or whatever, I don't care. Our church is primarily older. Forty-five percent of our people are over the age of 60. And let me plead with you. You're entering into your most significant time of life where you can have the greatest impact. But it doesn't come through fear. It doesn't come through, oh my goodness, I've got to hold on to anything or whatever. It comes through being securely growing in influence, being a godly man or woman, living your life for the glory of Jesus and not for the glory of yourself the older you get. And I don't know about you, but I'm, and I'm a younger man still, but the older you get, you know, actually actually, I've heard the older you get, you get a whole lot more energy and you get a whole lot more alert and you get a whole... Liar, okay, it's not true. The older you get, isn't it easier? And and I'm, you know, and like I, I joke about this, but some of you are a few years older than me, and so, um, you know, the older you get, actually, it's you you have a tendency to get set in your ways a little bit, right? Is that easy? Like routine. You know, if I'm not in bed before nine, I've already got a routine. I'm like, oh my gosh, the world is coming to an end. Like I've got to be in bed. You know, like what is wrong with with me? Uh, we, the, the, we have a tendency in this world as to, the older you get, to actually grow inward. Everything needs to fashion around what I think. And let me tell you this, the kingdom of God is not like that. We need godly men and women. The older you get, energy may wane, but your desire to do what Jesus wants you to do grows. Where you don't ride off into the sunset just wanting to do what you want to do till you die. You grow off loving Jesus, following Him as a son or daughter, and seeing Jesus do the impossible through you. You have much life to live. Jesus has miracles to work through you. Follow Him. Don't get tired. Don't finish the fight. Or don't, don't quit the fight. Finish the fight of faith. There's excuse after excuse after excuse that younger people and older people can have as to why everybody else needs to do it. Why everybody else needs to be on the team. If you're on Jesus' team, you're on the team and you're in the mission. God has called you to much good work. Okay? So we're in this together as the family of God, on mission together. Don't make excuses. God is working in you. Do something. Okay? So we see this. This little boy. Whatever you have, Jesus, I want to give you. What happens? What happens? This is where it gets exciting. All our excuses that we drum up, and we let go of those and say, Jesus, use me however you want. Whatever you want for me, I'm willing. I want to follow you. I want to grow in godliness. I want to be whatever you have for me. I'm available. What happens? Jesus works. Look at this. It's absolutely tremendous. Jesus does the impossible. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed to them those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. They gathered them up, filled twelve baskets full of fragments and five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now, so he gives up a little bit, this little boy, insignificant little boy, and Jesus does the impossible. Friends, this is what's so wonderful about following Jesus. We follow him, we give him our lives, and then we see him do miraculous, wonderful, glorious, huge, abundance and supply things. He Feeds them so much food that they are satisfied to the full. All 20,000 of them. They were invited in to see the work of Jesus. How wonderful is that? They literally got to see this. It's like the saltine cracker. What's your name right there? What is it? Kalen, okay, it's like I give you saltine crackers, and it's like, look, okay, I'm going to do a miracle, I'm going to give you saltine crackers, you eat it up, you pass it, and all of a sudden there's two more saltine crackers, and you eat it up, and you go through, and since it would take about 100 saltine crackers apiece for us to all be filled, that it multiplies that much, and, and we would it's just be, this really happened, and all the boy had, what was available to him, all that the crowd had, and everybody else was just simple recipients of the work of Jesus, all this little boy had, he just said, okay, here, you can have it, it's available, You give them something to eat. If you're on Jesus' team, listen to me. You're in the game. Every one of you, non-optional. Non-optional. There's places to serve here. There's people who need discipled. There's evangelism out there that needs to happen. There are nursing homes and uh, assisted living places to visit and to encourage other brothers and sisters. There are family members that need to hear about Jesus. Get over yourself and tell them about Jesus. There are sons and daughters who need to see godly men in the home and godly wives in the home. that take responsibility for their children and don't just bemoan well if the, the church would just do this or blah, blah 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 it's on you. This we're in this. How wonderful is it that Jesus says come with me I'm going to show you incredible things. Oh, we get to be invited into that kind of supernatural living. Like how wonderful, how glorious, how much joy! Just being a part, of like seeing this Jesus. You provide Him. I just want to. Okay, I, I more and more. I just whatever. I'm available. What do you, whatever you want from me, Jesus, I want to do it. There's another way to respond, and we see this in the crowd. We hear this message. We hear that Jesus is calling us into this. We see in verse. Actually, we'll actually skip that. Um, we see this third part, the crowd. How does the crowd respond? We're going to see more clearly in a couple of weeks that they respond badly. But here, they respond in such a way the crowd does that reveals that the crowd wanted Jesus on the crowd's terms. Now, here's where we become the crowd. If you want Jesus on your terms, Jesus, I want you to save me but I don't want to help the people eat. I want you to save me, but I want to be a spectator and just sit and do nothing. Jesus, if you want Jesus on your terms, you will not get him. You don't get to just say, I love Jesus, I'm a Christian, I go to church a couple times uh, a year or here throughout the week and I don't live... Ch- change the Holy Spirit working through me. I'm not growing in godliness. I'm not discipling or being discipled. You don't get to do that. It's not an option. It, we see it here in this passage. Here's what it says. Look at verse 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is, a prophet, is the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Some sad words. Jesus withdrew. He withdrew to the mountain to be by himself. False zeal for Jesus will not be rewarded by Jesus. You want to come to Jesus on your terms? He will withdraw. Jesus, I want to come and I want to tell you how I want to live my life. I want to come to you because I want you to heal me. I want to come to you because I want you to make me rich. I want to come to you because in you I'll never have any problems. I want to come to you because you'll save me and give me a ticket and get out a free hell card. I want to come to you because I, whatever, you come to him on his terms, you won't get him. To be a Christian means you have surrendered yourself to Jesus. It means you have come to the end of yourself and you've realized, I am wrong, I don't know what's best. I don't want to be in charge of my life anymore. Jesus is my king. He is my master. He is my leader. He is my savior. He is in charge of my life. I am not in in charge of my life any longer. That's what it means to become a Christian. You see this. They wanted Jesus as king. Friends, we make this mistake. To this day... We think if we would just get right legislators, if we would just get the right president, if we would just get the right king, if we would just get Jesus here to implement our rules, our laws, and to overthrow that evil Roman Empire, to overthrow that evil fill in the blank, whoever it is, and we could set up proper rules and laws, everything would be great. We would have no problems. That is not true. Yes. We want to see godly men and women and leaders. We are to pray for our leaders. Jesus is not yet come to set up that kind of kingdom. He will one day. But right now, here's what's so wonderful about the kingdom Jesus is a part of. It's bigger than nationality. I love this country. Love it. But it is not the kingdom I'm a part of. Now hear me say that. I love this country. I love America. Okay, But it's not the kingdom I'm a part of. Because the kingdom I'm a part of reigns and rules in hearts of people who are in communist China and people who are in prisons throughout the globe who have the freedom of Jesus. It reigns in Mexico. Reigns in South America. It reigns in Africa. The kingdom of God and our King Jesus reigns in Europe. Reigns in Canada. Reigns in Southern Illinois. The king and his kingdom are spreading through this state, spreading through this country, spreading through this globe. This kingdom that we are a part of is an unstoppable force. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is changing hearts and changing our world. He will come one day and defeat his foes, defeat his enemy, set up an earthly kingdom. But until then, until then, We're going to worship Jesus and we're going to see Him transform this world by the way He calls us to do it and by the way He says He's going to do it. And it's in the hearts of one person to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. This is what Jesus has been doing for 2,000 years. And so, do we want Jesus on our terms or do we want Jesus on His terms? The hope for this country is Jesus. Really. It's Jesus. The hope for this world is Jesus. You know who we have in this room? Who do we have? We have Jesus. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to make disciples? Are we going to be on Jesus' team? Are we going to be in the game? Are we going to be on Jesus' mission? Or are we just going to let the professionals do that? This is where we're left. This is this is where do you want Jesus on your terms or are we willing to say Jesus whatever you have for me that's what I want. I'll read it again. Perceiving they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. If you want him on your terms, you won't get him. We come to him and say Jesus, I'm yours. Jesus would rather be alone than with a crowd following him on their terms. So let's go back to the beginning. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, you're either a missionary or an imposter. Here is the call this morning. The call is this, get in the game. Will you go and buy bread with me? Will you give them something to eat? Now that you know me, disciples, will you go and tell the world? Will you go make disciples? Will you go and give me whatever you have and see me do without excuse or without exception? Will you see me do miraculous things through you? Will you see this world, your neighborhood, your friendship, your families be transformed by what I'm going to do through you? Will you just open your hands and say, Jesus, I'm available and see God work? Or will you put your hands in your pocket and say, well, that's good for other people, but I'm comfortable with the way things have been. Me and Jesus are good. So I'm going to come Sunday and I'll be back next Sunday, but I'm not going to get in the game. If that's your posture, Jesus is not yours. If you're Jesus's, then we're on mission together. We're going to see, friends, I'm telling you, we're going to see Jesus do impossible things. So here is for you this morning. If you, this morning, and Andy's going to come up here and play. If you want to respond to Jesus, and you want to be like this little boy and just say, Jesus, whatever I have, I want to be available to you. Whatever you're calling me to do, I realize that my responsibility is to be in the game. It's to be on mission. I can't just say, Jesus, I want you a savior, but I don't want you to tell me what to do. And so, whatever you have, now is your chance to come forward and say, Jesus, okay, here, whatever you have for me. If you need to repent of some things, of not being in the game, if you need to repent from just sitting back and just, alright, whatever, Jesus, I just want from you, if, then you come and do business with Jesus. If you don't know God... If you are not a friend of God here this morning, if you have never repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, I want you to meet him and then I want you to be on mission with him. There is much work to be done. Our world needs people who are radically in love with Jesus and isn't afraid to tell the world about it. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would help us. Holy Spirit, only you can do what I'm hoping and pleading as I'm preaching. Holy Spirit, I ask for you to do what I can't do. Help us. Holy Spirit, work in us. Open our hands. Open our hearts to help us to know these things. Let us hear you say, where are we going to buy bread? Let us hear you say, Jesus, you give them something to eat. Let us respond to your grace to us with showing grace to the world. Help us, God, work in us. Show us areas in our heart that are wrong. Show me areas in my heart, in my life that are wrong. Change those areas. Holy Spirit, work. I thank you that right now, even like 2,000 years ago, if we were on that massive grassy hill, we would see you do the impossible, Jesus. I pray that we would sit back and watch right now, even as lives are changed, as hearts are changed, that we would see you do the impossible. The individuals in this room would see you do the impossible as they let grip, let go of the grip on their life and say, Jesus, I'm yours, that they would see you do the impossible through them this work. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.